Hi, and welcome to Axel Bank Reports History and Today Conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. I'm Evan Axelbank, and today we're going to speak with Amy Russo, the author of Women of the White House, the illustrated story of the First Ladies of the United States of America. She's a city reporter at the Providence Journal and has written for Huffington Post, the New York Post, and USA Today. Thanks so much for being here, Ms. Russo. Thank you for having me. Before we start our interview, I do want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash History. We're going to donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. When I was growing up, I remember getting a coffee table book that was maybe twice the length and width of a regular hardcover. It had the portraits of, at that time, all 41 presidents, so I was about 10 or so. Each president had a big color portrait on the right side, and on the left side page was a bio sheet full of their essential data, the place of birth, their parents' names, their career path, what offices they held previously, all those things, uh, cause of death, where they died, um, and then important events that happened during their administration. The book became one of the vehicles that got me into politics and started my lifelong love of history. I love seeing their pictures laid out in order, looking into their faces. Women of the White House by Amy Russo is a similar book, but it's about first ladies. Each first lady's portrait is accompanied by an article that is more than just essential data. There are stories of how each first lady impacted their husband and thus American history. So. Amy, if I may call you Amy, when and how when and how did you decide that we needed to learn about the first ladies in this context, in this format? Well, the idea started with Welbeck, which is the publisher, and they had reached out and they said they had a concept for a book about first ladies and they were looking for a writer. And would I consider it? And I happily accepted because one thing I learned after doing a little research of my own is that the field of first lady scholarship is really, really small. There still aren't a lot of truly comprehensive books about the first ladies, what they did, their political contributions, their lives. Um, I believe the first book that was really in depth and totally comprehensive was written by Betty Boyd Caroli and it was released in the 80s and it's called First Ladies. And there have been many updates since, but anybody looking to get into the field, I mean, that's where I started. I, I looked through that book and, uh, you know, it, it spurred a lot of my other research. But, you know, researching the field, there really still aren't that many books around. So that that was a huge propeller for me to keep going with it because, I think it is crucial that, that we learn more, that we have more knowledge and, and more history available to people who want to learn about it. Why do you think an illustrated history was so important? Um, anybody, I guess, could, I mean, maybe not anyone could write the articles, but you know, it wouldn't take um, a lot of creativity, I guess, or maybe provoke the same type of thought um, in your readers if there weren't the illustrated aspect of this book. Why do you think that was so important? Yeah, I think that adds a lot to the book rather than just, you know, reading the text because part of what you see are, are not just the portraits of the different women, but also sometimes you'll see artifacts from their lives. I believe there's a, a lock of hair 
perhaps from Martha Jefferson, I think it was, because after her passing, Thomas Jefferson was so deep in mourning that he actually carried around that with him in remembrance of her. It was an incredible story, uh, the way the two of them were connected even after her death. So, it, you know, and there are other things aside from that, other objects that belong to them that have been photographed and placed in the book. So you get a sense as of walking through a museum of what their lives were like. And I think the portraits are also uh, very telling, of course, Earlier on in the First Ladyship, we didn't necessarily have lots of portraits of each First Lady, so I find the ones that we have to be kind of interesting. I always wonder, you know, a lot of them are done in a way that makes the First Lady look very young, even though some of them were advanced in age when they entered office. So I always wonder, uh, what would they have looked like? What would they have, you know, been like? But I, I think the visual element, uh, it really helps to fill in some of those gaps, and indeed there are a lot of gaps still because, you know, only parts of history have been recorded and, and I think, uh, you know, our, our research is, there's a limit, I guess, to how much we can truly know, but I think it helps. You know, I, I, what is amazing um, is that I'm somebody who can recognize every president and I know tons about them. I've spent my entire life reading about each one and, and keeping track of what I've read about each one. And I, you know, you recognize, or at least I recognize all of them by face right away. Very few of the first ladies going back, certainly into the 1800s and into the, um, you know, even if you look at the, uh, some of the early first four or five of them, placing a, 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 a name with a face is more difficult with the first ladies. Um, what is, I know what I think at least to the answer to this question, but what do you think about what that says as you called it about the field of scholarship when it comes to the first ladies that even someone like myself didn't recognize all of them right away. Yeah, I, I think the answer is that it, it says that we as, as Americans aren't very familiar with the history of the first ladyship and the people that held that position. Of course, we always look to the president as the center of power. And in many cases, I mean, in all cases, he is. But, uh, you know, the woman, his right-hand woman, you could say, in many cases, was an influential person. Not in all cases. There were a handful of, of situations in which first ladies were reticent or they just didn't want the job. And, of course, it had been kind of, you know, circumstances had thrust that position upon them. Um, so, you know, rightfully so. I guess some of them just it wasn't in their life plan. But... You know, there were still very many impactful women. And I think, um, you know, Americans, I, I don't get the sense that we're always very aware of our history in general. I think, you know, internationally speaking, we'd probably rank a little lower in terms of familiarity with, with history. Um, but I think especially when it comes to the First Lady, there really is a lack of, of awareness. You say the role of First Lady is defined by culture as opposed to the Constitution. Um, let's start, I guess, with the title of First Lady. Where did it come from and what did it mean? Yeah, I, I'm not quite sure when exactly that became kind of the commonly used title, but you're right that it was not written into any of our governmental documents. It still isn't. There's no official job description that exists. There's no pay that's associated with the role. And so the way I look at kind of how it came to be more defined. I, I think it's more in these incremental steps uh, that it occurred. Edith Roosevelt had set the precedent of having paid staff. Rosalind Carter was the first first lady to establish her own East Wing working space. So I think 
you know, those things plus the use of the title, you start to see over the course of decades, really, the slow, you know, creation of, of that role and sort of making it more official, even though it's not official, it's really just ceremonial. So I, I think that helps to give it some more, I guess, a, a, you know, more of a credence, I guess. Um, but yeah, a lot of it is defined by culture, defined by what, what our expectations are, first ladies, and also the precedents that were set by the, the first ones we served. And today we're used to first ladies having causes, as you mentioned. Jill Biden is the teacher in chief. Melania Trump advocated for an end to bullying. Michelle Obama encouraged healthy eating. Laura Bush promoted literacy. Does that make it an office or is it a role? You know, I guess you could say technically it's an office to the extent that there now is the East Wing and the First Lady now has her own office, which obviously wasn't always the case. But I'd say overall it's more of a role uh, because it's, you know, there aren't really defined expectations. There are societal expectations, expectations based on what people have done in the past and what people are expected to do in the future. But it really is open to definition, which is why it's it's also so interesting is that, you know, unlike the role of, you know, the president or any other elected official, you don't have this specific set of duties. You have kind of the freedom to champion, you know, different causes or do different things. And I mean, I guess a lot of elected officials have that power in their own right. But I think with the first ladyship, it's, it's more malleable. What's interesting is that there have been several reluctant first ladies in recent history. Melania Trump, Michelle Obama, she famously was not thrilled with her husband's um, foray into politics, and then it became much more than a foray. Um, there are also some relatively eager ones, despite the difficulties that they experienced, Hillary Clinton, um, Nancy Reagan. The first one was also reluctant, Martha Washington. Um, how did she shape the role, um, the way George Washington shaped the presidency. Yeah, I love that that fun fact that Martha Washington was reluctant because I think <laughs> if you don't know a lot about the history of the first ladyship, you might assume that maybe she was really enthused about the role, but she, even Abigail Adams after her, they neither one of them was thrilled about it. Um, but Martha Washington, I think, because she was kind of unsure of what exactly the role should entail and how exactly she should shape it, I think what she ended up doing was more of uh, restricting herself to traditional duties. You know, she hosted uh, formal dinners and public receptions, both of which became, I believe, weekly events. So she established some kind of structure there where there was an expectation that, okay, once a week there's going to be a dinner, once a week there's going to be, you know, a time when we welcome the community into the White House. Uh, so I, I think she really set the table for, for it being a hostessing role primarily in, in its early days, which I think to this day is still, you know, an expectation, but I think that was much, much weightier expectation earlier on. Maybe the most famous first lady moment of all time. And that's if you consider the good moments. I mean, you know, obviously <laughs> some of the bad ones have really been captured by history and described over and over again. 
But it's when Dolly Madison saw the British were coming um, during the War of 1812. And maybe some of this has become a myth, um, but for the most part, it seems like this happened. She grabbed the portrait of George Washington off the wall and took it for safekeeping. Um, uh, and I love when George W. Bush uh, looked at Michelle Obama and said, if there's anything happens, there's your man. In other words, pull that one down and take it with you. Um, what does the moment of Dolly Madison um, taking that portrait off the wall say about the perspective of history that first ladies have and how they are in some ways guards of the White House mansion. Yeah, that was such a memorable moment, historically speaking, and, and such a key moment that really defined who she became remembered as. Uh, I, I should note there are historians who, who believe it's more likely that she may have directed a slave to, to grab the, the uh, portrait and take it down. Um, so, you know, who knows what actually happened inside that room, but um, I, you know, you could say it was definitely her, her idea, her intent to make sure that it's safeguarded, whether or not she took it or, or somebody else took it. Uh, but I think it says that there was this, you know, deep pride in the culture around the White House, deep pride in history, um, and a, you know, patriot, a strong patriotism and a desire to safeguard, uh, you know, our, our historical artifacts, really. Um, so even in that harrowing moment, when they were going through a total crisis, she had the presence of mind to think of this. So I, I think it is quite remarkable. How do they start to gather political influence? How does the office, I should say, say start to gather political influence? You describe the teas that were organized by Louisa Adams. How important was that? And explain what those um, teas were. Yeah, so uh, Dolly Madison, she had organized uh, weekly squeezes, which were, and she was our, let's see, our fourth first lady? Fourth yes, first fourth. lady, yeah. Um, so she had organized weekly squeezes, and they were called that because of the number of people that would squeeze into the White House, and they were politicians from both sides of the aisle. And uh, the point of this was kind of, it, it was a social event, but it was kind of thinly veiled because it was also a, a way to hobnob with other politicians, have conversations, meet with different people. And so that was kind of something that, that made her influential because even though she was playing the hostessing role, this was a clever event. Um, lots of political opportunities uh, for people existed within the, the weekly squeeze that were held. And at one point there's even some, I guess, folklore, uh, which I assume is true, that she dipped snuff with Henry Clay, who was the Warhawk Speaker of the House, um, because her husband couldn't really be seen allying himself with, with Henry Clay. It just wouldn't have been acceptable then. So she was kind of the go-between uh, in that way. So, so she was, you know, politically uh, influential to some, to some degree, I guess. Uh, and then as you go through history, obviously, I, you know, women feel more empowered to take on that role at certain points. And of course, you remember Eleanor Roosevelt and Hillary Clinton and classic examples like that. But there were also you know, the, the Dolly Madisons who, who made perhaps smaller, less obvious contributions that were still uh, powerful in their own right. The term you use there is dipping snuff. 
Uh, that is yeah. uh, that is chewing tobacco, correct? I believe it is. Though <laughs> so I should, I really should look it up. All right, yeah. we're going to Google it real quick. It Dipping mm-hmm. snuff, right? Okay. Right. Uh, but my years as a high school and a federation baseball player, I, 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 I believe I remember the word snuff from from the other players' lexicons. Not something I ever partook in, but dipping <laughs> snuff. Um, uh, uh, Another first lady that I think is fascinating and one that has gotten some attention from one very famous scholar over the last few years is uh, Amy Greenberg. She wrote a book on Sarah Polk. Um, and you describe Sarah Polk's uh, quote as Mrs. Polk believes. Um, she didn't want to quite speak for her husband, but she was sort of also speaking for herself. Um, explain how Mrs. Polk believes became part of, if not our national lexicon, at least our, her, our, at least her lexicon. Yeah, so Sarah Polk, you know, while she's definitely not not uh, the most likable first lady, she definitely was politically clever. And it's funny because she she opposed suffrage, she opposed abolition, the abolition of slavery, and yet she herself wanted power. So while she didn't want, you know, uh, other women to have power, you know, she didn't want slaves to have power. She wanted that power for herself. So, and she knew too that she operated in what was then and still very much is a man's world. And uh, so while speaking with other politicians or influential people, she would frame her own opinions, it's said by historians, uh, kind of through the, the lens of her husband, she would say, oh, well, Mr. Polk thinks this, Mr. Polk thinks that. And really it would be her own opinions. So, it was kind of this veiled way of, of sharing what she thought without looking like, you know, a woman who was trying to, to inappropriately have too much say. Um, and it's interesting because, um, because her husband, James Polk, had such an influence and such a, an impact on the United States' future. And here she is having her own impact on the future of First Ladies. Um, I want to take a brief aside here because... It is not written anywhere, essentially, as to what the office of First Lady should or shouldn't be. And it doesn't even have to be the president's wife. And around that time of history, uh, we have a number of First Ladies who were not the president's wife. We, over the last hundred years or so, have had essentially since Edith Wilson, um, and I guess even before that, the, the, the First Lady has always been the wife. Explain um, some of the First Ladies who we had who were not married to the president. Yeah, so, uh, well, there were those who died before office. So Martha Jefferson uh, passed away before office. Her daughter, Patsy, sometimes filled in. Rachel Jackson died before her husband took office. Uh, Hannah Van Buren, there's very little known about her, but she also died before her husband took office. So what would happen in these situations is usually if the, if the, uh, you know, what would have been the first lady had had a daughter by then, the daughter could fill in, or perhaps a niece could fill in, but they wouldn't be expected to fill in, you know, on a constant basis to the same extent that the actual first lady would have done. I I don't think there was any point in history where all those expectations were kind of put on their shoulders. But if there was like, you know, a significant social gathering, something where there needed to be some organizational help, then you know, they would step in as hostess and, and they, they'd contribute, but again, not on, not on a very full-time basis. 
Let's talk about Mary Todd uh, Lincoln. She um, probably, certainly, um, you know, other than Hillary Clinton, probably has had the most ink spilled about her um, in terms of trying to figure out what she meant to her husband and what influence she had politically and what happened after her husband served as president. She led a fascinating life in those years following her husband's death. Um, describe what you think is Mary Todd's influence on the first ladyship and how do we see her influence today? Well, I, I think the one thing that people remember, unfortunately, about Mary Todd Lincoln is her erratic behavior. And to that extent, I think her influence on the first ladyship was, you know, I don't know that she had huge influence on it, but she definitely left a mark in perhaps a more negative way because of uh, her behavior it was suspected that she was probably dealing with some sort of mental illness, possibly bipolar, seemed to worsen over time. And of course, uh, the traumatic events that she suffered in her life, you know, might have only accelerated that, might have only intensified it, uh, you know, not only losing her husband uh, to an assassin, but also losing two of her children. And so she really was a woman that had suffered great tragedy. And uh, there was a fair amount of criticism over her. I think, you know, the press might have looked at her more as a thing of amusement um, because of the way she was. But I think she had definitely seen a lot of hardship. Let's talk about some of your favorites. Uh, one of my favorite presidents, and this is almost not repeated by almost anybody um, else, but I love Taft. I think I just love the guy. Um, you know, uh, his time in office uh, has been sort of swallowed up by the fact that he's bookended by Teddy Roosevelt on one side and then Woodrow Wilson and World War One on the other side. Um, but Taft, I find, is just a fascinating guy. And um, you talk a lot about Helen Taft and how important she was, particularly in why she and how she pushed for the education of women. Talk about uh, talk about Helen Taft, and then give us some of your other favorites. Yeah, Helen Taft is a really interesting woman because she's one of those people that that is kind of credited with, you know, being the reason that her husband ever ran for president. So when we think about the influence of the the first lady, just the fact that you know, obviously, whoever you're married to is is probably going to be pretty impactful on your life. She was somebody who, ever before he entered politics, she was steering him in that direction. Early on, she helped to connect him with the right people at an early age. I believe it was a kind of an intellectual discussion group that she was part of that she invited him into, and he met other like-minded people there. And so he, she was kind of, you know, shaping him, molding him to be this type of person that could maybe one day be a leader. Uh, so I think that's pretty fascinating. She's the woman behind the man, I think. Um, we have to talk about Edith Wilson. I mean, she, yeah. you know, uh, because of what happened to her husband, he had a stroke while he was traveling. And suddenly she is essentially the gatekeeper to the office of the presidency. Yeah, she's another fascinating example. Somebody who was most uh, most vital during the time her uh, husband was president, because obviously after he uh, was incapacitated by a pretty severe stroke, she ended up taking the reins. And you know, at that time there was pressure for him to to basically give up the job because physically speaking, I think it's fair to say he couldn't really do it anymore. His health had become that poor, so. Um, 
in her memoirs, and you know, there are some historians that think she might have overstated her role, but in her memoirs, she writes that uh, she had kind of liaised with different politicians and, and different folks uh, to, you know, transmit or keep information from the president while he was sick. Uh, so she had really become, in some ways, the person who was steering the ship. And I think there was some upsetment over that, uh, some feelings that, that you know, it was very inappropriate what had happened and, and the way that power was being kind of shifted to her side. But she definitely uh, was somebody that the president relied on a great deal when he was ill. There are, I'm not passing judgment on this statement, but there are some people who consider it one of the biggest scandals in American history that we essentially had an unelected uh, president. Uh, it's hard for me to judge that. We've had a lot of We've had a lot of scandals. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, Eleanor Roosevelt, uh, obviously, um, you know, there's, she's one of the most storied first ladies. Uh, she helped set up the United Nations. Um, and there's a push to put her present day on, um, I, may, I guess it's the $10 bill or the $20 bill, uh, probably the 10. Uh, either way, um, uh, uh, Eleanor Roosevelt, what impact did she have and how did she start to make the first lady ship even bigger than it already was. So she had a huge impact both uh, during the time of her husband's tenure and even after. She was very public service minded, uh, devoted to the World War One effort. She was also a master of media. It's crazy how much involvement she had with media and what great command she had of it. Not only did she write books, she delivered radio broadcasts on a somewhat regular basis. She penned a nationally syndicated newspaper column, which I don't think any first lady has ever done to this day except for her. And she shared that power with women as well. Uh, she had even, of course, this would be so controversial today, and I'm sure it was then, but she had even blocked men out of press conferences so that women could have more of a voice. Uh, and she was very... Um, she was very, I think, social justice minded as well. One story I love is that, uh, so um, at a point, uh, each first lady would get kind of honorary membership in the DAR, this group called the Daughters of the American Revolution, which for those who don't know is a, a collection of women who are tasked with, you know, proving that their lineage goes back to revolutionary times and then they can become part of what is in many ways, a social club. And uh, so first ladies would serve as kind of their honorary president during their tenure. And uh, there was, you know, an undercurrent of racism there because the DAR would not allow a black singer, Marian Anderson, to perform in its concert hall. And so uh, Eleanor Roosevelt, she resigned from the DAR in protest. And it became a very public show that she would not tolerate discrimination of that kind. Um, and so even after her tenure, uh, she was still influential. In 1962, JFK appointed her to his commission on the status of women that looked at workplace and educational inequality. Uh, so she still, uh, I think it was Truman who called her first lady of the world at some point. So she, she really had an outsized influence. And she is maybe responsible for the most... Um the most poignant quote, perhaps, in the history of the first ladyship. Uh, she said, uh, uh, I think it was Harry Truman. Well, I know it was Harry Truman who said, is there, uh, is there anything we can do for you, Mrs. Roosevelt? And she said, no, what can we do for you? You're the one in trouble now. <laughs> great, <laughs> great quote. Um, yeah. 
you mentioned Kennedy. Uh, Jackie Kennedy did um, a commercial in Spanish that may have helped her husband win the presidency. What um, what a moment that is for the first ladyship stepping out. Um, I guess this was before she became first lady, but it made clear that she was going to be a prominent, um, if not necessarily member of the administration, she was going to be a major part of the public face of the administration. Yeah, Jackie Kennedy, um, you know, she spoke several different languages, I believe French, Spanish, uh, possibly uh, something else. So she was, uh, she was pretty cultured and she also presented really well to media. She was always put together. Um, I think she could, she could be politically influential in terms of helping her husband. You mentioned the commercial in Spanish, which was definitely, you know, she definitely proved herself to be an asset in that regard. Um, and I think one thing that always impresses me is also her stoicism when uh, she suffered from the assassination of her husband and the photo of her, uh, that really famous photo of her standing on Air Force One when the new president was being sworn in and she was still wearing the same bloodstained, uh, you know, clothing um, from that moment. So, and she's a very, uh, you know, poker face uh, in that photo. So I think there, there's a lot to be said for her strength. Um, for her ability to be an asset in, in what she did for her husband as well during his life. The movie Jackie that came out, I don't know, maybe it's probably three, four years ago now, really worth seeing. I would highly recommend. Uh, may, I'm sure you've seen it, but but um, the movie Jackie was really, really good. Um, I got a cheat sheet from um, your publishing staff and you wrote, or, or someone wrote on the cheat sheet that your favorite first lady is Betty Ford. Tell she us is, yes. Yeah, so Betty Ford, I just found to be very refreshing in my research. And of course, uh, she was around before my time. But um, one of the things I love about her is that it appears that every time she suffered from some kind of personal struggle, she made it something that would be a public service to others. So shortly after uh, she entered the White House, um, she was diagnosed with breast cancer. And back then, talking about a diagnosis like that would be kind of taboo. People didn't really discuss breast cancer publicly, but she ended up uh, putting out a public call to all women to immediately go to screening centers and just get checked. And uh, that included the second lady at that time, the wife of the vice president, who found out that she too had breast cancer. She had a double mastectomy. So, you know, you could say that, that the first lady at that time had actually kind of in a way, helped to save the second lady's life by making this not something that was shrouded in secrecy, not something that was shameful, and uh, really, really uh, attempting to help others through her diagnosis. And she did the same thing when uh, she was suffering from addiction, which hadn't really been made very public, at least by Betty Ford until after she had left the White House. And then of course she sets up the Betty Ford Clinic, uh, which is just admitted so many people, both you know famous and average people and, and has really done a lot of good. And isn't it amazing that talk of addiction is um, thankfully so prominent today and is such a part of our discourse that we don't, discourse that we don't even give it a second thought that she, um, that she is the one who blazed that trail. Yeah, she really was. And I, would assume that at that time um, when she was suffering from it and perhaps it might have been somewhat publicly known before she left the White House, but maybe not very much that, you know, then it probably still would have been 
controversial, but uh, I think today she's really remembered as somebody who really um, did a great service for others who were facing the same problem. Hillary, Hillary Clinton, of course, said being first lady during her presidential run in 2016, and, prob and I'm sure in 2008 too, although I remember 2016 a little better, that's only four years ago as opposed to 12 years ago. Uh, she said being first lady was great preparation for being president. How um, did she transform the political power of the first ladyship by essentially basing a run for the presidency, not just on being secretary of state, not just on being a senator from New York, but on being the first lady? Yeah, I think she was somebody that, that I didn't know this, but from the outset of her life was a political person, even dating back to her college graduation when she spoke at commencement and she dressed down an elected official who was there and had spoken. She had felt that what he said was a defense of the Nixon administration at that time and, and she stood up to that person. So, uh, yeah, Hillary Clinton has always been influential. I would say that the greatest service she did uh, for the first ladyship in some ways is, is managing to become an elected official herself while serving as first lady, um, which was unprecedented, unprecedented then and still remains uh, something that has not been replicated. And I think in her own way, by doing that, she broadened the role. And, and that I think was something that was pretty unexpected. I don't know if everybody would have thought it would be appropriate for a first lady to also be a senator. Um, but now there's a precedent. So now there's that kind of open door for first ladies who want to have more influence than just this ceremonial position to pursue greater ambitions if that's where they feel like their future lies. And we also have to talk about Jill Biden, uh, one of her successors. She is the only first lady to, as far as we know, to make a salary in um, the first ladyship, of course, is not paid. It's not uh, prescribed in the constitution, um, but she's making a salary now as a teacher. What does that say about how this office is transforming and maybe transforming even further into the future? Yeah, so Jill Biden, she has, you know, right out from the gate made a huge contribution uh, to the first ladyship by still working as a teacher while being first lady, which is unprecedented. I think, you know, there's this expectation that you set aside whatever your, your career may be at that moment in service of the, the White House and the first ladyship. Um, and in addition to that, she also is perhaps the most highly educated first lady we've ever had. She has a PhD and two masters, um, but also Michelle Obama uh, has a law degree as did Hillary Clinton. Um, so I guess it depends how you evaluate different degrees, but um, you know, needless to say, she is very educated. And I think, you know, her setting that precedent, precedent of being a working first lady uh, kind of paves a pathway for others to do the same if they wish. Good first ladies be paid by the taxpayer, given how much their role has expanded? Yeah, that's a tough question and one I've never been asked before. Um, I kind of feel like they should be because of the amount of, you know, the number of duties they have, the expectations of the role. Though, I really think it varies. I think that's where the question is difficult is that it varies from first lady to first lady how active they are. And we've had some first ladies, you know, decades and decades ago who frankly didn't do much at all, 
out of choice. And we've had other first ladies who've done, you know, a huge amount. So I guess that kind of depends. If you, if you ask me about a specific first lady, should they have been paid? I think I could say uh, yes or no, but right, right. you know, I guess it depends, depends on the person. So it's a tough question, but it's definitely an interesting one. Which first ladies captured their time perfectly? In other words, represented their time perfectly in terms of the role that women were expected to play in society. And then which ones extended themselves beyond that role? Well, I'd have to say the ones that, that go above and beyond are definitely uh, Eleanor Roosevelt and Hillary Clinton. Um, but also, you know, to give you a couple uh, other recent examples, both Rosalind Carter and Nancy Reagan were also both politically influential. They kind of, I think, in, in many ways extended themselves beyond what was expected of the role. Um, Nancy Reagan, I, I like the story about her, her kind of... Uh, reaction to the whole Iran-Contra affair, that it said that she engineered the firing of the president's chief of staff, Donald Reagan, and she had also helped to kind of direct the president's, uh, you know, response to media at this time and, and how he was going to patch up his image. Rosalind Carter, she kind of played the role of ambassador, which is, you know, something that, that not, not a lot of first ladies always do. Uh, she traveled to Latin America, traveled to the Caribbean. Uh, Jimmy Carter called her a very equal partner. So some other examples of women who've gone above and beyond. As for women who really fit their time, that's an interesting question. I would say, you know, when you get earlier into history, uh, you have more of those traditional hostessing duties, which I think was very, you know, uh, emblematic of the time. I really like, uh, I, Lucy Hayes makes me laugh because uh, she, you know, instituted temperance in the White House, which I think perhaps, I mean, part of it came from her own background, but I could see that perhaps fitting with her own time. And she was nicknamed Lemonade Lucy. So there were a lot of cultural, cultural influences that kind of shaped what the First Lady did that were reflective of their time as well. Was there another First Lady, of course, other than Hillary Clinton, who we have any indication wanted to be president themselves? Hmm. That is a great question. I, I, I don't know. I always, I wonder if maybe Eleanor Roosevelt could have felt that way, perhaps. I mean, I, it does seem at least from everything she did that she enjoyed having a very, you know, public facing image. She liked being out there. She, she liked public service. She liked, uh, you know, all of her involvement with media, which she was quite skilled at. So, yeah, I, I'm not quite sure. That's a great question. I guess, I guess I gave myself kind of a lightning round of questions here to see, uh, to see what you think about some of this stuff. Uh, <laughs> which, uh, here, this, this is another one. Maybe you haven't heard this one. Maybe you have. Which president would have been the best first gentleman based on what we know? Oh, Wow. I've never been, been asked that either. There we go. We got three or four first timers here. Yeah, that is first a gentleman. tough question. I I don't know that I'm sure about that either. That's uh. Let me think. Um, let me think. JFK would have been an excellent first gentleman. He looks, you know, he the the suit, yeah, you know, the suit's well that. cut, and he he knows when to step forward and when not to. Um, he, he was pretty good walking around with kings and queens. I could see that. Um. 
let me think. How about another one? Teddy Roosevelt would have been an awful first gentleman. He would have been oh, way no, too no. talky, way too talky. Yeah, he needs to. He needs to have power. He's somebody that needs to carry a big stick. Right, right. Uh, well, if you think of any others as we continue our conversation, let me know. Presidents who would have All been right. good first gentlemen. Um, has American feminism been helped or hurt by the ideal of the first lady? I suppose it kind of depends on which which woman we're talking about, but I, I certainly think that there is you know, a general upward trend of, of, you know, women gaining more power in the first ladyship as you move through the history of the role. So I think, um, I, I would guess, you know, to be an optimist, I guess, I, I think American feminism has been helped by the first ladyship. Uh, and, you know, to have, to have a woman that, that is, well, now I don't know. That's another tough question. I guess in, in some ways, you know, it, it reinforces this this notion that women are expected uh, to be in one role and men are expected to be in the other. The fact that we call it the first ladyship, you know, automatically signifies that that it's a female role, and uh, you know, this whole concept of first gentleman is something that our ear is still not used to. So I guess when you think about let me rephrase my answer. When you think about the titles, I think that doesn't help because it, it yeah. reinforces that notion in our head. But there are certainly, you know, quite a few women who have managed to wield a, a good bit of power in that role. So when I think about that, I, I think about, you know, uh, even uh, even uh, Frances Cleese, uh, Cleveland, rather, um, she was even helpful, like Eleanor Roosevelt, to women in the press. So I, I think about things like that, like women helping other women, and in some ways that's that's been kind of sharing the power. Uh, but the titles the titles probably don't help. Here's another. I just thought of it. Another president who would have been a good first gentleman, George W. Bush, and that's because he's funny. <laughs> Right? Yeah, perhaps, perhaps. Yeah. Perhaps. George W. Bush, there's another potential first gentleman who would have been good at it. Um, if you could give the first lady one presidential power, in other words, transfer something that is under the president's authority to the first lady, what would it be? Wow. <laughs> You're throwing some tough questions <laughs> at me. Oh, God. I know which one I would do, but you go, go ahead. W which presidential power should be in the hands of the first lady to make our country better? Honestly, I, I think I'd have to say none of them because the, the first ladyship is not an elected role. So I almost feel like it would be kind of unfair, unfair to the voter to- You got me there. To give a power to somebody who's not been elected. So, I mean, is this whole concept of first lady kind of quaint and outdated and should we just, you know, maybe do away with it? Yeah, perhaps. But, you know, to, to give it, you know, some sort of a power that we bestow on an elected official, I think perhaps wouldn't be appropriate. <laughs> well, I'm going to give you one that may not be appropriate then. Uh, how about the power to make war? <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. As we're sitting here right. watching another American adventure overseas go up in flames. Um, yeah, perhaps we'd have less war. I don't know. Who knows? It'd be tough question. to have more of it. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, uh, give us some book recommendations. Uh, best biographies of first ladies? Yeah, I would definitely have to go with uh, Betty Boyd Caroli's 
First Ladies, very simple title, easy to remember. It is, in my opinion, the most comprehensive work that I have read um, out of anything that I've come across. So that is my top recommendation. Best First Lady to teach about to fourth graders. Ooh, I think Eleanor Roosevelt. I'm just very, I'm very biased. I mean, I, I think she's just a great example of what a first lady can do. And I feel like she did the most. And there's just, you know, there's so many accomplishments and so many great stories uh, that go back to her tenure. One of the concepts that your book wrestles with is this idea that, um, that, that, uh, that the first ladies have been very close to power, but not quite there. Is there someone in the political arena right now who's a female, let's go with female, who has the best chance to be president, that you're watching closely and saying, maybe this person could be president someday? Yeah, that's a great question. I'd have to say, and maybe this is kind of an obvious answer, I'm not sure, but uh, Vice President Kamala Harris, I think, uh, you know, she, even while she's- Close enough at this point, right? Yeah. She, she is pretty close, and while she was a candidate, uh, obviously, like so many of the, the female candidates we had, she had a pretty big resume, a, a pretty accomplished resume, and I think, you know, I think in some ways the bar is a little higher for women. If you look at, like, her background, Elizabeth Warren's background, there, there's so many, uh, you know, such a such a rich list of accomplishments and obviously she's made it to the vice presidency as did biden before he became president so i think there's a chance i'm going to put you on the spot even more than i already have um was this a precursor a precursor for another book project yeah i you know i would love to write another book and i would say that i'm almost certainly going to I don't think it would be about first ladies, uh, but I see it more as being something that, because I'm a reporter, I think it would probably come out of like a story that I'll work on at some point one day that, that perhaps lends itself to to a book or something investigative or something that, that there's, there's a lot of need to. So I'm always kind of keeping my eyes open for what could that thing be, because uh, I, I enjoyed this process. I love the research and I think, uh, you know, I think everybody's got at least one book in them. So uh, I, 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 uh, uh, I'll take you up on that. How about that? Right. Everyone's got one book on, uh, one book in them, in their head somewhere. I think um, so. It'd be interesting to have a book on president. I'm not saying you should do this, but it'd be, you can, but it'd be interesting to have a book on presidential children. Wouldn't it? To, to see all the children laid out in this format. Yeah, I've never thought of that before. Yeah, interesting, right? Very interesting. Uh, you mentioned you're a reporter. Tell us about the uh, the work that you're doing. Um, I, I'm I'm a local news reporter, and I understand you're a local news reporter. I work in Tampa, covering news of all kinds in Tampa, and you work in Providence, right? Tell us about your day to day life as a reporter and what kinds of things you're covering up there. I love it. I I think it might have been H.L. Mankiff who said that reporting is the life of kings, and I have to agree. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. Yeah, it's a wonderful, wonderful uh, way to get paid. Um, so here in Providence, I'm the city reporter for the Providence Journal. 
so on a day-to-day -day basis right now, that means a lot of crime, <laughs> but uh, you know, we're in the summer months, it tends to, as it is nationally, frankly. Uh, so it's that, uh, policing is another thing I report on, the mayor's office, um, whatever's going on there, any announcements, any, uh, you know, we have a mayor who may run for governor, very likely to run for governor. So we've got, you know, our, our mayoral races coming up, our gubernatorial races coming up. And uh, sometimes I cover the state house. And then sometimes it could be something completely random that I am just interested in and I kind of run with it. So we've had a lot of post-pandemic I say post-pandemic, but here we are kind of still in the pandemic very much so. So maybe one day, but kind of pandemic recovery stories about local businesses or, or you know, other aspects of life in the city. So it's a really broad beat, which I love. Yeah, you know, you're, what you're describing is something that is one of my favorite sayings that I've ever heard in journalism. I guess it was 2004. I was an intern at KNBC in Los Angeles and a brilliant executive producer there named Wendy Harris um, who I'm still Facebook friends with, said to me, reporting is a front row seat at life. And I never forgot that. And that's the life you're living now. Yeah, that is the perfect way to describe it. And that is exactly why I got into it. Because reporting just allows you to go places, meet people, learn things, do things. I mean, you just experience in life. So I love it. It's awesome. And I agree with you. Amy Russo, author of Women of the White House, the illustrated story of the First Ladies of the United States of America. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Certainly check out that book, also the Providence Journal, and her Twitter profile, at Amy M. Russo. I want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash axelbankhistory. We're going to donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. And thank you for listening to Axelbank Reports, History, and Today, conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Axelbank History. We update those with clips from the show, guest announcements, and book recommendations. See you next time. Thanks.